Well, I just want to thank all the moms who sent in those, and uh, and we just appreciate your words. Uh, there is a reason why um, when 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 an athlete you know gets that few seconds in front of the camera and they stand there and they say usually what hi mom I mean once in a while mom and dad seldom dad right and it's because uh, when they know that, that, that they wouldn't be actually standing there without the presence of a mom in their life the way that their mother was. And I realize I'm generalizing, but I think that's a generalization you see quite often. And so, moms, you are amazing. We are so grateful for you. One day a year isn't enough to celebrate um, everything that you moms do for us. And yet we want to say to all moms everywhere, here among us as well as in heaven Thank you. We are so grateful, and we say that happy Mother's Day to you. And you may not realize it, but Mother's Day is the third, it's the number three holiday behind Christmas and Thanksgiving. It's celebrated by 84% of the people in our country, and the average gift spent on the adults, so mom, plug your ears here, by an adult for their mom is $220.48. With the grand total, and these are all figures I could give you all the data from National Retail Association, Small Business Site, etc. The grand total spent in the U.S. alone is $28.1 billion. That's how much moms are loved. And so we thank you for how God has used you. And your works are, um, are, are many. They are not only sometimes works that are, are happening outside your home. There are works that are happening as well as in your home. And one of the greatest works that God gives you as a mom and then as parents is that of raising a child who then raises a child who then raises a child who then raises a child. And there is a lady named Anne Maria Reeves Jarvis who got the Mother's Day ball rolling and the seed for Mother's Day as we celebrate it today began back in 1856, but it wasn't until 1914 when it was Anne's daughter, Anna, who um, took this to the point where finally Woodrow Wilson made it a national holiday, a national day to remember in the U.S. And so um, you can look at their story and... and um, and Jarvis, the one who was the initial one who didn't see it become a reality, um, had four of 13 children survive. And she gave much of her life, incredible life, much of her life in works of, of, of providing medical care, finding and developing ways to get money for medicines, and to basically improve the sanitary conditions for, for poor moms. And, and one of her other things she did was during the war, if actually before, during, before, during, and after the Civil War, work to bring reconciliation would be right at those border places where she would work with both Union and Confederate and bring them into oneness and had this incredible life with a passion. One of her passions was to make a day called Mother's Day for everyone in the world. And she didn't see that come to reality, but her daughter, Anna, uh, came along and she lived that out. She taught Sunday school for 20 years. So both of them um, did so much of their work so that's recorded because of their faith in Christ. But for 20 years, Anna, the daughter, taught Sunday school. And, the, and people would come back when they would ask 
about her teaching. What was the thing you remembered? She said, they said, they said she would always teach about the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And she went on and made it her passion to make Mother's Day her mother's dream a reality. And she began by just doing this. She started in a church service like this and then got other churches to do it. And they would meet and they would give a time where they would just celebrate mothers. And at the end of the service, when I was doing the research and looking at this, it was I didn't realize this because when I was a kid, they'd always hand out white carnations. Anybody ever remember white carnations? And I go, that's not necessarily ladies' favorite flower, right? What about some roses, right? Well, white carnations was Ann Jarvis's favorite flower. So that's what that tradition came from. And the other thing that Anna did in that first church service and then beyond that was to have mothers um, write, uh, I mean, everyone write letters to their mothers to honor them. So we honor that. And as I get into the message this morning, we're going to be talking about great works are the result of a great God. And I believe, as I read about that, they would be very much the ones who'd come up and say part of the great work, which occurred through their even establishing this, was because of a great God who came around them and came through the church to establish some things to honor moms. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father, would you take these moments as we study your word and we look at this chapter in Acts, which is all about the great work of the church the church that spread throughout the world. We ask that you would take and, and teach us some things that could help us to be a part of whatever great work that you're calling us to, whether it's something that is known or not known, whether it's something large or small, whether it's tending to what might seem mundane. We all have been given a place to make a contribution And someday we will all see those intricate areas where you have worked in and through the lives of your people. So God, we come before you and ask that you would do a great work through us because you are a great God. In Christ's name, amen. What I want you to notice when we look at this chapter, we're going to be looking at Acts in in this uh, 13th chapter of Acts. And what you'll find in here is the story of the launching of the church. I mean, what was a church in Jerusalem gets planted in, in a city called Antioch, and from Antioch, it just goes everywhere. And, and it would be really easy to look at this and say the launch was really the result of some incredibly important people that were involved in it. It was a launch because of so many um, wonderful circumstantial things that were happening at the time, but all those were a God who was behind it, orchestrating and bringing it together. And this passage of scripture shows that as it has reference to the Holy Spirit a couple different times, which I'd like you to notice. And there were all kinds of things that were happening. You could look at Paul, brilliant guy. He was important, but not essential. God could raise up someone. He, when he gets a work done, he'll just use whoever is ready. Um, you would, you could look at Jewish synagogues had been placed throughout the world due to the two times of diaspora where the Jews were either through the Assyrian or the Babylon conquest were spread throughout the world. And so there was these numbers of populations that made it possible for Paul and Barnabas to go to these different cities and actually meet with people who had some grounding already in the Old Testament. There was a time of peace like they hadn't experienced before because Rome was ruling. There were 
these um, language that was common. It was a Greek, which they call the Koine, which means common Greek language that uh, was spoken by almost everybody within the Roman um, territories because year, years before Rome came, um, the Greeks conquered and, and, and that language became the kind of language like English in some ways is spoken so many places in the world. That's what was going on. There was a Roman road system that was that was remarkable. I showed you last week the aqueducts that brought water to places. Their road systems were incredible. And they were all throughout the Roman Empire, which made it possible for people to get to places relatively easy, easily and also to do it safely. And all this was in place, and God was the one who was bringing all these um, important contributing factors together. But here's what you need to know. Any great work of God is happening because there's a great God that is behind it, that is conceiving it, that is guiding it and empowering it. There's a great God who is for it. That's why Paul, he would say in Romans 8.31, says, what should we say in response to this? No matter what the situation, if God is for us, and I just want you to hear that, Wherever you may be at, whatever you might be facing, whatever is going on in your life, if God is for you, he says, who can be against you? If God stands behind you. So let's read today's scripture. I'm going to ask you to stand. And um, we haven't done this for a long time, but boy, this is like as full as I've seen it for a while. And I would love to read to you these verses. It says here, among the prophets and teachers of the church... At Antioch of Syria, and there are lots of Antiochs, so they have to always kind of say it's the Syrian Antioch, were Barnabas and Simeon called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. We learned about Herod Antipas last week in the chapter 12. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit, you want to kind of underline that the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid hands on them and sent them on their way. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. And they went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogue and preached the word of God. And John Mark, they include there, went with them as their assistant, which will become important in next week's message. Afterwards, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, a very common name, Jesus, back then. You didn't think it was common. That's why it had to be Jesus of Nazareth. And so Bar meaning son, son of Jesus, not the one that you would think of at Nazareth, but just a common name. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. He was poisoning their minds, so to speak. And and so Saul, also known as Paul, which is an important reference I want you to notice, because in the next chapter, as we begin the next section, 
it does say he goes to Paphos, and now from that point on, he's no longer called Saul, and he's no longer after Barnabas. It's always, except for a couple occasions, it's always Paul and his companions are Paul and Barnabas. And so now known as Paul, there's a shift that takes place, was filled with the Holy Spirit, again, underline that, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye, and then he said, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. Remind you of what happened to Paul, Saul, when he was Saul? His blindness, he was blinded by the light of Christ so that he could see by the Spirit. That's kind of what he's happening here. He's blinded. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, the mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around and begging for someone to take his hand to lead him. Very similar to Paul's situation. And when governors saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. And what we find from tradition and others is that Elimus never did allow for that striking of blindness to bring light to his soul. And, and at least from tradition's sake, he continued on apart from God. So thank you. You may be seated. Thank you for standing through that passage of scripture. I did that so you wouldn't get too comfortable and not hear the rest of the message. Um, no, I, we do that in honor of the word of God. So the first thing I want to tell you is contributing factors that you look at when you look at this passage of scripture is a great work of God. When God begins to do something, the first thing I want you to notice is that he raises up humble leaders. And by that, I just want you to really focus on the word humility, people who are humble. The noted pastor and author Chuck Swindoll writes, when God does great works, God brings together humble, gifted lead, leaders, and it, and it does not matter if the external environment is hostile or lost. When God raised up through his son Jesus a work that he wanted to begin that would impact every one of our lives, he didn't go to, he, to, the, to Jerusalem and to the Hebrew Seminary University and pick the brightest and the best. He went and found some fishermen, like a zealot and a tax collector, all, in a sense, rejected by the religious group. They were not your best church people, so to speak. And he, he, he gathered around him people who were humble and willing to learn. People who were willing to give their lives and their gifts so that God could use their lives. He, I often will say this, he, he brought together the JV or the B squad, right? And so if you feel JV or B squad level spiritually, you are in great, great position to be used of God. Because that usually means you don't feel like you're really qualified in one sense and that in your own strength you can do it. It means that you're humbly serving. So in Acts 13.1, it begins, in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. So there are certain people who had gifts, prophets to be able to speak forth the word of God into a situation. And, and not always predictive. This is more idea of even speaking forth the word of God now for a moment. And then also teachers, those who would raise people up in, in their understanding, which was very much needed in the city. And, and he says they were, he lists them, Luke lists them, Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manaean and, and then Saul. And each in their own right were gifted leaders. Each of them, I believe, must have been humble people. They were, in a sense, you could say the leadership board of that church. And Barnabas was a former priest of the temple who came from Cyprus, a wealthy and generous guy, probably the most underrated person of all the people in the New Testament with regard to the spread of the gospel. 
And Simeon, called Niger, is what it actually is, a Jew whose nickname interestingly means black. He was more than likely a black man. Lucius of Cyrene, a Greek convert to Judaism and then to Christ, and he was from the North African coastal city of Cyrene. And then you have Manaen, who is the Hellenistic Jew, which just basically means he grew up in a Greek-speaking area, so that would have been his natural language, and and he was then a Greek-speaking Jew, a Jewish person in a Greek culture, not in probably Judea or in Palestine. And and then you um, move to... Oh, and then I should also just mention a real important thing about him. It, it's more than likely he could have been a Sadducee, which means he was an aristocrat. He was kind of the blue blood. Even though he didn't live in that Palestine area, he was probably, you could say, blue blood in the sense of religious qualifications. And then there's Saul, who comes from Tarsus. He's a Pharisee educated by one of the more premier scholars of their day. He was the great Rabbi Gamaliel. Well known in that day. If you were trained under him, you were trained under the best. Now you have these people with all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different places, and God brings together this group of people in Antioch, and he prepares them, each of them, as leaders for what God wants them to do, which is to bring together this church to launch this work of the gospel. They're both diverse and unified, and they're humbly seeking one that's to bring the gospel to as many people as they could and I don't know in their minds what they had reasoned out I don't know if they were coming together praying God we're reaching people in the city we want to reach more but all we know is they're worshiping and praying together and God had prepared them to do something incredibly great I just stopped there and I just want to say to each and every one of you, as I was thinking through where God has brought us. God has brought us through a time of COVID pause, through a time where we've been praying, through a time where we've been asking, where you have said, this is what God is saying through you. We want to do three things. We want to reach as many people as we can for Jesus. We want to embrace and empower these generations that are coming up, these emerging generations. And we want to do this together as a team. It's not much different than I think what they were praying in Antioch. And I think God hears those prayers and is delighted by those prayers. And as I was thinking about this, one of the things that's really unique about our church compared to some other churches is that we have a pretty good mix of every generation. And yet we also want to continue to grow by bringing in these emerging generations, these younger generations. And what I said when I spoke back in January about this whole idea of the millennial and Gen Z and, and how there's and people leaving the church, we're actually going to do some podcasts on why are people leaving the churches. We're going to do about four of them that I'd love for you to listen to, to just kind of dig into this deeper. But one of the things we found is as they're leaving the church, there's a real openness spiritually. And one of the things that they have found is they're very open to people who have walked the journey down the road some to come back and to speak into their lives. And, and I don't like the word necessarily mentor because it gives us over kind of position. But I like the idea of guides. We have a bunch of people who are in their um, 60s, who um, 50 or 60 and up, who have an opportunity to be a guide to these in that age group, whether it be through small groups, whether it be through serving side by side or whatever it might be. And I just want to, I just want to ask you if you are, 
in that time of your generation, you have been prepared. And I want you to think about it. You've raised family so you can guide. You've built careers so you can guide. You've learned life lessons so you can guide. You've endured illness so you can guide. You've faced devastating loss so you can guide. You've learned the lessons around finances. You've learned lessons around work-life balance. And I'm not saying you did them right. I'm saying you learned lessons. You've dealt with marriage difficulties. You've experienced, you've been trained. And, and what I want to, if you're nearing 60, hear this. You have another 20 years, not to retire, but to pour your life into God's kingdom. And we're developing marriage groups and small groups, and we want to do what we can to help bring people together to help one another grow and to make a difference. The other thing I want to mention is God overcomes insurmountable challenges and obstacles. When you look at this passage of scripture, the great works of God, whenever you have a great work, it often requires a great God because the challenges are so great. They're so big. They seem impossible. If you look at Syria of Antioch, it was one of the most difficult places to establish a church. Antioch married together both the east and west, so it brought together both the the Greek-Roman side of the equation as well as the Asian-Indian side that came from all different parts. They were actually an intersection of four ways, north-south and east-west. And they were a cosmopolitan city. They were filled with Greeks and Syrians and Phoenicians and Jews and Arabs and Persians and Egypts and Indians. They were the capital of that area, Syria, And they were the third largest city in the Roman Empire. 500,000 people in that day was huge. And so this city was teeming with all kinds of diverse cultural expressions. About every religious group that you could, you heard about in that day was found in these large cities like this one or Corinth or, or Rome. You would find many expressions of, 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 of even cults and religious groups. There were, according to the historian Libanius, in, in a work called Orations, he writes this, the city was the abode of the gods. Zeus, Apollos, Poseidon, Adonis, Tuke, and the great Ephesian god Artemis and more. They were all there. It was a business center. And there was also a large Jewish contingent who found themselves reaching all these different people and began praying, God, how do we make a difference in the world around us? See, Antioch, I think, was one of the toughest places to bring the gospel. Everything was going against them for this being the next big center of Christianity. And I think about our time right now, and I hear it from people, and they look at our nation where the church is facing probably one of the toughest environments ever, right? Right? Just look at the obstacles out here, the challenges that the church has. And there's a tendency to cry, woe is me. Woe is the church. Woe is this idea that God could be at work in our midst. And if you're crying that, you would be really wrong. We really need to not cry that. Because if you look at the work of God throughout history... God loves tough challenges. Think about that. 
He loves coming in to places that it looks like it's impossible and it's difficult because he is incredibly powerful to manifest and do what he wants to do in that situation. So I ask you to think about any situation in your own life right now. Think about the obstacles and the challenges and you go, boy, I don't know if that will ever change. I don't know if that external environment will ever change. And I have found one of the most difficult places to bring about change isn't necessarily external, it's internal. And I think sometimes when God begins to work in the internal places of our life, it does cause things to move externally. Not always, we'll see that in this book. But often, God begins to work in different ways than you would expect outside you when he begins to work inside you. And I, for me, one of the things that I sometimes just go, in my own quiet times, I go, oh God, just what you could do if I could, if you could have more of me. You ever prayed that? That's your heart desire? Well, this morning I um, woke up. I wasn't planning to share this illustration, but I just thought, well, okay, well, because somebody needs this, I think. Um, and I woke up and I see Grace and I said, Grace, happy Mother's Day, which is, you know, a couple points there. You know, ha- remembered right away, right out of the, right out of the box. And then I went down to work on the message, and often what I'll do in the message is I'll take time in the morning to kind of just speak it out loud while I was doing that. I was just getting started to do it, and I saw Grace. I'm out on the porch. She's in the office next to me. I just, I don't like anybody around me when I do this alone at home. I don't know what it is. If there's fear, like I'm going to sound stupid, and then I just go an hour later and I sound stupid anyway. But anyway, um, and so I go, okay, she's in here. I'm going to go downstairs. I'm going to kind of just get into a place where I can't be disturbed. No one will be around me. And I'm, I'm downstairs, I'm starting into it, I'm going, and all of a sudden I hear the door open and someone coming down the steps. And my first reaction was anything but loving. It was not what I like to have come out of me. And it's a bummer because we're only in the first quarter of the day and I'm down by 10. <laughs> I thought I was doing well. And so I'm preparing and, and I, you know, kind of, we kind of work things out and she goes back upstairs and I'm starting to go back this and I'm just feeling guilty and I go upstairs and, and I ask for forgiveness and, and I, and, 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 you know, usually in my own growth, and this is where I'm getting to the point here, God can change your heart, even the most difficult things within your character. He can take your reactions of fear, my reaction, like you could say defensiveness or whatever that reaction might be. And if you call out to him and say, God, it's not going to happen in your own will. You can do all you want in your own will. But when you call out and say, God, I want you to take this desire in my heart and combine your strength with it, he will begin to change you if you desire that. He will lead you into places if you're willing to go into those places with it. He will do it in your marriages if you go into places where you get help. I don't, whatever it might be, God will be with you. He is for you. He will guide you. So here I am. I'm coming upstairs and I'm working through this and I go, okay, I'm going to say I'm sorry. And, and normally in the past years, you know, this is learning, I would be sorry because of the pain I was feeling and I wanted things back to equilibrium. Anybody been there? Okay, come on guys. I, it, it, some of you women too. You know, you just want things right. And I'm going, that's not what's, I, what I'm praying for is that I understand how my actions, which may seem somewhat small in one way, hurt and harm and, 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 and cause pain. And so I went and I said, I'm sorry and forgive, you know, ask for forgiveness and all that stuff. But what I found as I began to pray about it is, you know, one of the things that's happening in me 
is the more I let God love me and the more I understand how he loves me and how he forgives me and how he works through that and I begin to start doing that with others and I begin to do that with my wife, I just look at what God has moved in my life over the number of years. I can promise you folks, God can change your heart. God can work in your marriage. God can work in your reactions at work. God can work and change you. And you may need to do like they did in Antioch right now and not look at all the stuff out there that seems so against you. It may be time to say, what was us, church? I want to tell you, folks, we are in one of the most exciting times. You know, when Jesus in his presence walks into dark places, he causes it to brightly shine. There is no one like Jesus who can come into any situation that seems difficult. And if you have Jesus with you, you can change. Church, if we look at what God has going on around the world right now, it is wonderful. Because in many ways, they're not asleep with this kind of half-giving themselves to the gospel. It's, it's preparing hearts to say the gospel is radically different. And God is preparing our world, and he's preparing you. There's this incredible bringing together of humility. If you're willing to humble yourselves and, and, and to recognize, boy, the first stage of that is just awareness. But what I've just done, I need to come before you, God, and I need to recognize what you can do in my life. When you bring that together with this challenge that's before you, God can do incredible things. I have a couple other points that I just want to share with you. And one of them is just simply this. When God begins to work and do a great work, he starts igniting a flame of prayer and fasting. Evidence of God at work always shows up with a deepened dependency on God. And as I was looking at this, it, it, the Holy Spirit moved in his people, the spark flickered, flickered, a flame of zeal grew within that church, and they fasted. They sought God both individually and together. They prayed individually and in small groups and together in worship, and it launched the greatest work of God that we've ever seen. It says in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... This was not some idea conceived by a group of people who met together for a vision weekend to get some practical strategic plans for how to increase their witness to the world. They weren't smart enough to do it. It was a group of people that God began to call together, humble, who wanted to do something, didn't matter what the obstacles were, and once they began to realize that God can do something through them, they began to just pray and fast, which meant they were dependent, saying, God, we look to you to do this. I don't think it was a mistake for us as a body to go through COVID because God was preparing us. We went through a time where we asked people, what's God doing in your lives? We went through a time where we had a season of prayer and fasting and continued to do that all the way through January. And we've continued to do that. And I am seeing, folks, prayer growing in our church, in small groups, in pockets. And one of the gifts that God gave in this time was Zoom. It's amazing how many groups are meeting through Zoom and praying together. 
I went yesterday and prayed with the groups of the three churches of us coming together. We prayed, and I, I, I don't have time to tell you how the Spirit of God worked, but I walked away from there, and I said, this is Acts kind of stuff. There were prophetic things that happened where a person came to another person who was, as we were walking and sat down and talked with these people on their porch, and I, I, God's at work. And I just challenge us to say, you know what? Let's just continue to ask God to bring us together like he did that church in Antioch and say, God, whatever you're calling us to do, I'm going to ask you to, to seriously consider. I will humble my heart. I will raise my hand. I don't care what the obstacle is. And I will deeply depend on you. And we will do this together through prayer and fasting. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and I'm going to, ask, I'm going to lead you into a specific prayer as we close. And I want you to think about, is there a dark place in your life? I want you to think about that. And I want you just to ask him to shine and give light to that place. And then I want us to pause and pray and take our eyes off ourselves. As you look at that place, you say, God, I need you to enter this area. Here's an area that I need to just step out with you. I want you to think about all that seems to oppose the church, all the challenges, anxiety, the depressions, the time limitations. And I want you to take a moment just to pray for someone you know who is a generation or two below you who needs your prayer right now. I'm asking you to do almost a maternal thing. It's like to look at this generation under you. Some of you just look at a generation below you. If you're in your 20s, look at those in high school or kids. I I don't know who it is. It could be a cousin. It could be someone that you've had contact with. It could be someone you know. Would you just take a moment and say, God, I come to you with the maternal kind of passion for this person right now. Father, you hear these prayers. We're asking that you would send your Holy Spirit into these places and that you would break chains, that you would give light where there's darkness, that you would step in in those places of pain. We're also asking you to come into our lives in ways where you begin to increase our light and you begin to work with the reactions that are our pride and our sin and our selfishness. So do a work in us and in those that we pray for. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.